Well, Esther, last week and throughout the few previous weeks, we've seen Esther be brave. We've seen Mordecai hold fast and not bend. And we've also known now that Haman is dead. And God was not mocked by evil. It did not win. But the story is not over just yet. And we know we just read it all the way through. But as we think about this, the chief perpetrator of evil is gone, but his plan is still in motion. If you put it in a modern day thriller movie, the terrorist has been caught, but the bomb is still somewhere in the town and we don't know where it is. So Haman's genocidal edict is still on the books. And on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is called Adar, we just read that, that day there's going to be open season, 24 hours of immunity to kill and slaughter Jewish people. And it's currently, right now, at the beginning of chapter 8 in the book of Esther, it's the third month. So nine months from now, that slaughter is going to happen. That's the timing of it all. And you've got to think and you've got to wonder if you're in the moment, can't the edict just be voided since Haman's dead? I mean, it was his bill. It was his idea. He's dead. Can we just get rid of it? Well, no, his... Death is actually irrelevant to the whole thing due to this Persian legal political uh, custom of whatever laws written down with the king's signet ring, it can't be revoked. We saw that Esther chapter 1 verse 19, if it please the king, let a, a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. And we also know this of a story that maybe is more familiar in the book of Daniel, Right. When that law gets written down by these evil guys who are trying to come at Daniel, that you can't pray to anybody else for 30 days, and it's written with the king, sealed with the king's seal. And in Daniel 6, 8, they come to the king and say, Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law, the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And that's where we are with the book of Esther. That's the same empire between Daniel and Esther. And it's a fairly foolish legal custom, is it not? I mean, you look back and you think about the stories as we read these things, and you're like, man, this leads to inevitably an exorbitant amount of laws because you can't ever revoke a law or edit a law, so you have to just add a new one that kind of counteracts it or complements it or subverts it in some way instead of being able to just edit it or amend it or strike it from the record. It leads to an exorbitant amount of laws that nobody would even know the amount of laws that there could be. And really, here's what it is. This is the law of the Medes and the Persians that when the emperor, when he does this, it can't be changed. What is that but the king is infallible? I mean, this is a claim to deity that when the king speaks from his throne, it is unchangeable. Because why would it need to be changed? It's a claim to be God. God is the only one who speaks infallibly. God is the only one who speaks and it never needs to be edited. It never needs to be changed or amended. This is a claim to deity. It's a foolishness of their system, obviously. Now, the conflict becomes this. How will Esther and Mordecai deal with the impending genocide in the midst of this legal construct? Is there any way forward? Was the killing of Haman just kind of a, a moral victory that has no real beneficial consequence upon the entirety of the people? Will God really protect his people? Will he preserve the lineage of the coming redeemer? That's been the question throughout the whole book. 
will God do that? We've seen this miraculous overthrow of the Enel initiator of all of this. But what about the plan that's still in action in this empire? Why was we read uh, earlier making us pay attention to how big the empire is? Remember, it goes from the Mediterranean Sea down to Ethiopia all the way to India. This is a massive area, 127 provinces, which totals up dozens of countries in our current maps. How will this happen? Well, let's follow the story as it unfolds in verses 1 and 2. You see Mordecai be exalted on that day. So the day that Haman's killed, which started out in the morning, what was happening to Mordecai is he was being paraded through the town by Haman. It's been a crazy day in the city of Susa. On that day, King Ahasuerus escaped to Queen Esther, the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came from before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off the signet ring, which she had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So Haman's house is given in total to Esther. Now, house means all of his possessions and all of his, uh, all that he owned and all that he earned. And it was tradition in, in empires in ancient times when a traitor is vanquished or killed that all of his stuff goes to the crown. And so the crown can then do with it whatever he pleases, and he gives it to Esther. And we see the fulfillment of a passage that we could read in Job twenty-seven thirteen. This is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressor has received from the Almighty. What portion and what heritage did they receive? You skip down to verse 16. It says, though he heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it and the innocent will divide the silver. But we see even in these initial verses of chapter 8, the theme of reversal. A poor Jewish girl who is an orphan ends up with everything that an ambitious, powerful, high-ranking, conniving, intelligent, pagan ruler worked for. I mean, the, the representative of the people that he hated ends up with all his splendor. He worked and labored and sweat for all of that and just goes to this poor little captured individual. This just fulfills Ecclesiastes 2, 18 and following. I hated, says Solomon, all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also was vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. So Solomon's working through himself a life without God in the book of Ecclesiastes saying, I'm working really hard and when I die, I'm going to give it to my son and he may be an idiot. And he didn't work for any of it and he's just going to waste it all. But in the, the converse is that Haman doesn't think that he's an idiot and he's building all of these things and, he get, and it gets given to the one that he hated. The person he would never want anybody to have his stuff she gets it all. None of what Haman worked for followed him beyond the grave. And it was so swiftly passed to another. Psalm 39, verse 6. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. He lived his life for his wealth and his status. He labored and sweat to build his little kingdom. And when he died, it was instantly given to the representative of the people that he hated the most. And it offered him no hope when he got before Almighty God. 
So that all goes to Esther. But then Esther then reveals Mordecai's relation to her. She finally tells the king, hey, this is who he is to me. Because the king, remember, he's the background. He's in the foreground, but in the background, he's the bumbling doofus who knows nothing. Everybody else knows everything that's going on. He knows nothing. And then now he has to be told, by the way, Esther and Mordecai, they go together. And now it's all making sense for the king. How did he, how did Esther tell me about the, the assassination attempt? But then Mordecai was the one who really knew about it. And then now Esther's coming in and talking to me. I know she didn't know about Haman's evil plan because I had her sequestered away in the harem and 30 days. I never even talked to her and she doesn't have a newspaper. She can't read about any of this stuff. So, oh, OK, so this Mordecai guy and then he's now also aware of Mordecai's courage. Mordecai, who worked in my outer realm of the government, he and Haman had a beef this whole time and he never bowed down. And even when he knew that his people were slated for genocide, he didn't fold once. I mean, imagine the witness of Mordecai now to the king who's just now aware of all of these things that have always been true. And so then what happens? Mordecai replaces Haman. Esther, Esther quickly gives all of what was Haman's to Mordecai, her adoptive father. The signet ring, the king's signet ring is pulled off of Haman's dead corpse and given to Mordecai. The once overlooked while the other was provoked, he didn't complain. He just obeyed, just faithful, faithfulness every day, all day long. And Esther transfers ownership over everything to Mordecai. He was humble before God. And God chose to exalt him in this way, an entire reversal of roles. We can see it poetically laid out in Proverbs 11, 18 and following. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. Verse 21, be assured an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Verse 23, the desire of the righteous ends only in good and the expectation of the wicked in wrath. And in verse 28, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. So then we see this reversal take place. And now a solution to the genocide has to be dealt with. Now that the formalities are out of the way, verse 3 picks up and Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plan that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it pleased the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in the provinces of the king for how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred so Esther after all of this Haman his body is being is dangling 75 feet above the ground impaled on this giant pole and she risks her life again you thought it was done it's not done she has to go before the king again. The whole golden scepter stuck out and in uh, response to her being accepted in the presence of the king, she has to do it again. She's not done being faithful to God yet. And notice she's not quitting until she's done. See, obedience to the Lord gets easier over time. It's like a discipline and a habit. Denying the flesh and putting on Christ, it, you, you get quicker at it. Remember how much, how 
She fought and, and argued the slightest bit when Mordecai told her to go and do that. And then she has these moments of panic at the banquet and then scheduled another banquet that ends up working out in her favor and the favor of the people. But now she just immediately, right after all the, the dealing with Haman's house is done, she goes right to the ground and no longer is she standing kind of trembling. She falls on her face and is pleading openly for the king. Obedience to the Lord gets easier over time. It builds over time. There's no secret trick. There's no get holy quick scheme. There, there's, no, there's no crash diet for piety. It's, it's just the slow obedience over time. One time I heard an older man ask my own father, how do you know the Bible so well? How do you know the scriptures like you do? And he gave an illustration, which fits here. When, when you're somewhere where it snows, really snows, like Colorado, somewhere up north, and, and then the first big snow is coming on just plain bare ground, the snow is coming down heavily, but it doesn't look like it's doing anything, right? I mean, it's dropping in between the blades of grass. It's, it's filling in holes and the, the, you know, the screen style patio tables. It's got to fit on all the little railings of it before it can span across. But then once there's a layer, whatever that moment is, that layer that has filled in all the holes, all the crannies, all the crevices, then what happens when the snowfall keeps going? It just, just piles up. That's what obedience to God is like. It eventually, it looks like it's slow and you're doing nothing and you're failing and you're failing. But then as it fills in all those crannies, it just gets easier and easier. That snow sticks faster and faster and just builds up to where you don't even see the ground anymore. Esther is living in that moment. She intercedes for her people. She's fully embraced her representative role and her job isn't done until they are protected. No longer reflexing, her, her reflex being her own well-being. You know what's going to happen to me if I go before the king, Mordecai. None more of that. Her instinct now is completely for her people. And the king grants her request, kind of. And King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, verse 7, and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you... May write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So he grants the request, but kind of, because he can't cancel the edict, right? Because of this foolish law of the Medes and the Persians where you can't ever edit a law or revoke it. You can't just nullify it. But is God bound by the foolish laws of men? No, we know he's not. And so the king, what he does is he gives Esther and Mordecai the freedom to write another edict. Hey, you guys got the ring now, so just take that ring and go write whatever you want and that'll be it. Go do that. Royally verified by the signet ring, it'll be a real law. Now, God's not bound by the foolish laws of men, but is God free to use the means of man's governments for his end? Absolutely, he is. If he's free to work above it and beyond it, he's certainly free to work within it. But you see here, the king is a bumbling, self-concerned politician. L look at what he did. Oh, Esther, I know that, and I, we, got, we took care of Haman, but how about y'all just do it? The king didn't write a new edict. The king didn't say, hey, I'll sit down with you and write this wrong that I am guilty of. 
It was Haman's idea, but the king said, yeah, go ahead and do it. He signed it. Haman didn't have the ring yet. It was his fault, but he doesn't help them. He doesn't say, let me fix this. I'll make sure that it all the way gets done. Doesn't help. Doesn't admit any fault. Doesn't say to his wife that he loves, apparently, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I let this go. I need to really reconsider how I've been ruling this empire. If I could let something like this just slide under my nose. None of that. He stands an example for all of us that God rarely places truly good men in power. Rarely. First Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For consider your calling brothers, meaning consider you as Christians, he writes to this church, the apostle Paul does. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, meaning you don't have a lot of degrees and a lot of credentials. Not many were powerful, meaning you don't have high ranking in the government and other things like that. Not many of you were of noble birth, meaning famous, celebrity, having that kind of influence. But God chose, what did he choose? What did God decide to choose as far as it goes to the church? He chose what is foolish in the world. It's not really foolish, but the world thinks it's foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak. It's not really weak, but in the world's eyes it is, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring the nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God rarely puts a truly good, a godly man in power. That's why we don't see a lot of actual celebrities or athletes or politicians or CEOs that are truly born again. They're believers. Because who chooses? God chooses. He's, I did not choose these. I chose the weak and the low and the embarrassing. And yet we think as the church, you know what would help us? If we could just get a really good Christian celebrity. So we'll cling on to anybody who says anything about God at any point and say they're a Christian. Thank goodness. Let's see all their movies. Or we'll say that about a politician. No, 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 I really, I think I went to church one time. I'm pretty sure he has membership somewhere in some church. That's a Christian person. Why are we so desperate for a celebrity when God says, I don't work like that. I work with the weak and the low and the, the unwise and the foolish and the despised. But he is always giving godly leaders to his church. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And he gave, what did he give? God, what did you give to your church? The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and then the shepherds and teachers. And what do they do? They equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. That's what we look to. God is giving those. He's not giving celebrities and athletes and politicians and CEOs, but he is giving godly men to his church. We should be praying and crying out, give us more. We want more of those. We don't hope in men or in offices Like Psalm 27 through 8 says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, meaning the power of an army, of an authority, of a country, things like that. Some trust in those, but we, what do we trust in? We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. The world's power, its power sources are inept and impotent. Their strength is just a mirage. And the king, King Ahasuerus, is an example of that. So then this decree gets issued in verses 9 through 14. And you see in there, we're not going to read the whole section, but what you see in there is a lot of detail given. Because remember when the first edict went out? 
All that detail was given. So you're seeing a parallel in both of these, even down to describing the kinds of horses they used. They were the really, really fast ones, and they were all sired by the royal stud, the horse that's been bred for all these things. That's the horses that they use because this news has got to get out. So you see the parallels in all of this, the date marking and all of the precision. But when in the beginning of it all, you see Mordecai gets to work immediately. Mordecai is a man who's been working in the government. We know that from previous chapters. And he, he's God's man for the hour. So he gathers all the experts. Help me write this edict so that it will directly refute the other one. So he gets to work, uses the skills that God has given him. Make sure that every people group and every ethnicity, well, this has got to be translated accurately so that everybody knows because this empire spans language groups. So it's got to be written correctly. It's got to be translated correctly so that everybody understands what it is. And it's got to go out quickly on the Pony Express of the Persian Empire because we only have nine months. And nine months to expand, that, to, to cover that much ground, that's not that much time. So it's got to get out so that everybody can know and be ready. And it is a flat-out contradictory edict. Essentially, the edict is this. The Jews can defend themselves against anybody who attacks them. They can utterly destroy anyone who attacks them. Not just, you came after me with a club, I can come after you with a club. You came after me with a club, I can burn down your village and kill everybody in it. Because that's the edict that was written against them. No laws limiting the retaliation to proportionate levels. Everyone who attacked the Jews can have... The, the utmost level of wrath rained down upon them by the Jews. It leveled, in a sense, the barbaric playing field. Now the Jews are gearing up and they're organizing for war. It's as if the lunchroom said, fight, 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 and the teachers say, no, we'll do it after school. But then all the bullies, lackeys, all got detention. And so they can't hold the arms back of the kid getting beat up. So now it's a fair fight, and we have the exact same amount of time to prepare for it. That's the, that's the playing field now. It's the edict, though, if you think about it, is it truly equalizing? Well, no. There's far less Jews, and they're scattered all over the place. There's not like a high concentration where they can just defend some mountain somewhere. This is not an equalizing, truly, on the human level, equalizing edict, but it does show the active hand of God in their favor. And it empowers the weak and makes the strong worry. That's where they are. Now they have to worry and panic. And so we see verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Mordecai is certified royalty. Certified royalty. He's got the robes the outer ones and the inner ones. And they're in the royal colors. Blue and white was the imperial colors of the Persian Empire. And he's draped in them. He's truly at the top. He has surpassed Haman even. The citizens of Susa, they volunteer their adulation. They don't have to be forced. Like when Haman would walk through the town, everybody's forced to go down and give him homage. These people are offering it to Mordecai all on their own. That's how thankful they are to have him as a leader. And when he is announced as the ruler in this level, contrast it with all of the shouting and the rejoicing and the light and the gladness and joy and honor to when Haman gets that role. 
in, in chapter 3, 15, or when Haman uh, issues that edict, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Haman's edict goes out, it's confusion. Mordecai's edict goes out, and it's rejoicing. Everybody. So obviously, the level of anti-Semitism in the royal realm was a lot greater than it was everywhere else in the empire. Mordecai is the beneficiary of this because an evil ruler is bad for everyone. Proverbs 29, 2, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. Proverbs eleven ten. when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. The city is glad to be under Mordecai's leadership and God's common grace is being poured out in Susa. Even these unbelievers, we would much rather have Mordecai than Haman. This is way better for us. But the Jews rejoice particularly, as you see there uh, in verse 16, but then in 17, in every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. It's like a wave going through the empire. And as the news hits a new town going out from the capital of Susa, there's just joy and gladness just rolling to the perimeters of the empire. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves or became is a better translation of that. I'll get to that in a second. Became themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This edict goes out and they're just rejoicing. Psalm 511 would come to mind. But let all who take refuge in you, God, rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. God's favor and his kindness to people is causing all of this rejoicing in those people, of course. But what else is it leading to? It's leading to conversions. So that word declared be better translated became. These people are becoming Jews. They're becoming Jews, meaning they're converting. They're leaving behind their pagan rituals. And they're worship, becoming worshipers of the one true God. Suddenly, this downcast, doomed people group is shouting for joy in the streets. And you got to wonder, why are y'all doing that? What's going on? Haman's edict didn't go away, right? So why are y'all so happy? Oh, wait, wait, wait. These people are so confident of a victory when it's a level playing field that they're celebrating now? This thing's nine months away, but they're celebrating now. What do they know about this God that we don't? And now they're being drawn in. Let's look at the plain facts of those verses in, at the end of the chapter. The heartfelt worship of God among a people of God led to many being saved. That's the plain facts. The heartfelt worship of God among the people of God led to many being saved. That's what happened. Being excited about the one true God and being confident in his deliverance, that hasn't happened just yet. But they're worshiping together with others of his people. That leads to evangelistic blessing. Do we see that here in this text? People rejoicing corporately 
and collectively over their shared salvation brought outsiders into that same salvation. We got to see that in this text. Pastor, that may, okay, well, that's happening there and then, and it's a different situation. Well, let's just put it in our context. What have you been saved from? Haven't you been saved from something worse than genocide? You've been saved from the eternal punishment of a righteous wrath of God in hell for eternity. You've been saved from that. So then why aren't people being converted in droves because of us and because of our worshiping of this one true God? I got to think that maybe it's because more often than not, when anything comes into conflict with worship, with the gathered body of people of Christ, anything that we're doing else outside comes into conflict with that, we'll choose that thing over worship. So that we never have to tell anybody, hey, I'm not going to be there because I can't miss worship. Or, hey, I can't pick up your shift. Or, hey, my kid's not going to be at that thing. Or, hey, I can't go on that trip because I can't miss worship. And that, well, don't you do that every week? Man, why do you got to miss it this time? Yeah, I only get to do it once a week. So I can't miss it. I got to be there. Do we ever tell anybody, no, I won't be participating X, Y, or Z because I have to worship God. Well, what's so great about your God that you have to do that every seven days? I got to come see. If that's how great your God is, it's almost like Solomon's lore, the folklore about Solomon in the book of first Kings. The queen of Sheba says he can't be that good. He can't be that wise. He can't have that great of a kingdom. I got to go see if it's real or not. Do we talk about the Lord God like that? I got to go see if it's real or not. Because everybody here in this pagan civilization just says it must be that something must be going on because all of these people were dragging around and were miserable. But then it flipped as soon as the sign got posted in the middle of town square. Something's different about these people. What are they talking about? Who is this God? Now, we, in our context, do we believe John 13, 34, and 35 or not? Because that's just a New Testament parallel to this. What did Jesus say in those verses? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How will everybody know that we are with Christ as we love each other in the church? And we've been told for decades now that that won't work evangelistically. But here it is working evangelistically. They have to come in and see. These people are going nuts. They keep worshiping their God. What is going on? Why are they so confident? This this mongrel people who have been oppressed for 70 years now. Why are they so confident? What is going on with them? And they're only celebrating with each other. We're not a part of that. See, why do we believe that our peculiarity as a people is a problem? We think that it is. But what verse has convinced us that fitting in with the lost will win people to Christ? Where is that verse? It's not here in the scriptures. That's nowhere in the Bible. Those Jews did not blend with the Persian of those days. 
They didn't blame the Persian culture, yet they win many of those Persians to the true faith. Did anyone, did anyone in the scriptures used to save massive amounts of people, did they blend in with the culture? Did Jonah blend in with Nineveh? What was his message? Hey guys, I'm going to stay here for four or five years before I do anything. I want to earn the right to be heard. I'm going to sit through and I'm going to get to know you guys, where you're at, meet you where you are. He walks into the end of the city saying, God's going to destroy you in 40 days unless you repent. And then what happened? They all repented. And then Jesus says to his people and his era, those people, the Ninevites are going to rise up in judgment against you because you won't believe and you're seeing miracles. All they heard was repent or die and they all got saved. What about the apostles? Was that their message? No, the message was you killed the savior. And they say, what do we do to be saved? What do we need to do? Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 14. That's the message. We're not called to fit in, but we're called to be peculiar. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. You look different. Everybody can see you. And they're in the darkness and you're the light. And when you're in the dark, light hurts your eyes, but it does let you see. And that brings people in Ephesians 5, 7 through 12. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Second Corinthians 6. This is not a passage about marriage, though it's uniquely applied to marriage uh, or, or uh, exclusively applied to marriage, but it applies to all of the life of the Christian. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is a satanic uh, idol. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And then James 4.4, perhaps the heaviest of them all, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Our peculiarity, this isn't hateful. This is the word of God. It isn't anti-missions or anti-evangelism. It is missions and evangelism. We go and look different and people say, why are you different? Why are you rejoicing, Jews in Susa and elsewhere in the empire? Why? There is no way. We have to come to this kind of conclusion. There is no way to do true evangelism and have everybody like you. But that's what we want. There's got to be a way to do evangelism and that the worst thing that happens is that they're just unaffected and neutral. But that's not the biblical case. Either they get converted or they kill you. That's the scriptures. That's what we're left with. So either they will love it or they will hate it. Shooting for a neutral response is not just foolish. It's unbiblical. What good is it if they like you if they're a foreigner to Christ? He has to know Christ in order to be saved. And it was the Jews being Jews that won people. The Jews being Persians did nothing. Esther being a Persian did nothing. When were her people saved? When the king knew, I am a Jew. When she was hiding that, it did her people no good and did her no good. Does our evangelism 
then caused the lost to fear because these people, for fear of the Jews, had fallen on them. Because what does the fear of God do? Proverbs 19, 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life. It leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm, by the harm of God. The fear of the Lord leads to life, not not trembling, not, not oppression, not some kind of perverse slavery. It leads to life. Life. So if we identify ourselves with these Jews, let's think about at chapter 8 here as we close. We're in a similar moment. We're not the actors on our behalf. We're, we're needing saving from impending doom as people in, in the world anywhere. And we need a representative before the sovereign to speak on our behalf. So let's think about Esther and Mordecai and their typology. You know what I mean when I say typology? Type being a representative. Like a, a shadow is a type of the actual thing that's casting the shadow. So look at Esther. She identified as one of the doomed. She did. And she sanctified, or she rather, she sacrificed her life for them. She didn't have to give that life, but she sacrificed her life. So also did Jesus for us. He identified as one of us and sacrificed his life so that we might be saved. Listen to Mordecai. Mordecai refused to worship the evil one, Haman. And after suffering at least the threat of death, he was exalted and now is at the right hand of the throne. So is true for Jesus. He would not worship the evil one, Satan, and then thus subvert the cross and get the kingdom without having to go through it. And now where is he? He's at the right hand of the Father. That's the typology. We see Christ in these types and shadows in the Old Testament. But what we need is we need a perfect Mordecai and a perfect Esther. And what they get to do, they bring this salvation, but it's not yet there. It hasn't happened yet. In chapter 8, are the Jews actually saved? No. Has Judgment Day actually come? No. It's nine months away. So why are they celebrating as if it has? Because Haman has been crushed and Mordecai wears the crown. That's why. All that's left is the curtain draw in nine months. It's an inevitable conclusion. It's as good as done. And that's where we are as Christians. Why do we call ourselves saved right now? I, I'm, I'm not in that yet. But we call ourselves that and rightly so. Why do we sing like we're in the new heavens and the new earth? That's one of the, one of the most glorious things that we do every Lord's Day is, is sing and all these voices in our weirdly shaped room are like hitting each other. We're like singing at each other's faces, which praise God for that. But why do we sing like that as if we were in heaven, even though we know we're not? Why do we sing like that? Because Satan and sin and death have been defeated and Jesus wears the crown. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, meaning we're not alone, we live and, and move in a community of people, dead and alive. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where we live. We live in the already not yet. Just like they were living in the already not yet. It hasn't happened yet, but it's as good as done. It's as good as done in God's eyes. It is done. 
Think of just the verb tenses in Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Shouldn't it be will glorify? Because, yeah, predestined, that happened in eternity past. Uh, Called happened in our past at some point as a Christian. Justification happened at one point in our lives in the past. But glorified, that's a future thing, but yet it's in the past tense. Why can the Apostle Paul say that and not just have to say, ooh, that's, that's my bad. That's supposed to be will glorify. Because in God's eyes, it's as good as done, even though it's not yet done for us. And it brings our witness of Christ to others, to the people. It's that unshakable confidence that God uses to draw others, just as he did in Susa. That's why we worship as loudly and as faithfully as we do. So we wait, but we wait expectantly. He will come. It's not a question of if. He will. We will be saved from the marked out day of judgment. That won't affect us. There's nothing ahead for us to fear. There's nothing ahead of us in this pilgrim journey to fear. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, at one point, he gets this armor put on him and he's making the way down this hill. And as he's coming into this place, he sees that there's one called Apollyon there. And Apollyon represents the devil. And it's this big, gruesome, scaly, uh, man-like figure with wings and all. I mean, just this horrible, scary image thing. And what he thinks is, I could just go back to the castle that was behind me. But then he realizes, there's no armor on my back. If I turn around... I'm completely exposed. So the only way forward is forward. The only way of survival is survival. And he does. That, that scene is so beautiful as he battles with Apollyon, and then he's victorious because of the sword of truth. But that's us. We have nothing to fear before us. That's where all the armor is, and that's where we got to walk. That's where we've been given the protection. So we walk forward, knowing in the already not yet of this life. And we rejoice exuberantly. We sing like heaven is already our dwelling place. It, it, we let life's buts, well, what ifs or well, what abouts, we let those just slide off our back. Yeah, we're going to get sick. Yeah, cancer could come. Yeah, pain and suffering will happen. I could get, lose my job. Could get threatened by the government. That could happen. But, but we're going to be glorified. It's as good as God's honor that we will be glorified. So we can sing now. Trials are inevitable, yes, but glory is far more certain than trials. Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, I consider that suffering, whatever sufferings you could go through in this life are not worth comparing. They're not even worth mentioning with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. And so with that, we pray for increased faith. We ask our Lord, help us endure to the end. The, the disciples in Luke cry out, increase our faith. We should be saying that every day. Increase my faith. Deepen our desire for faithfulness. And your heavenly father who knows how to give, give good gifts and who will bring home every child that he has chosen. He will supply that strong faith and he will bring you all the way home just like he does in this illustration of Esther chapter 8. Amen. Father, we thank you for that truth that you bring us home. Lord, we can, we can read the scriptures all day long and see nothing but our failures, and we know that we are sinners. But 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That being in Christ means that our Savior, our representative, our elder brother, the one who loves us, is at the right hand of the throne. He has all the power. And he's interceded on our behalf on something far greater than just writing a contradictory edict in some book of law somewhere. He paid for it. He let the day of judgment come to him, and he died in my place. Lord God, forgive us for thinking so lightly of that. Forgive us for some days just being and acting as if we're over it. That it, it, it's great, but what else is there? Father, reignite a, a burning appreciation and, and, and the, uh, the blinding brilliance of the gem of the gospel to us. May we see that we see types of Christ like Esther and Mordecai, but they are just mere shadows of the real substance who is the man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. May he be our treasure, our greatest desire, our greatest possession. We know we don't possess like we possess shoes or a car or something, but the greatest thing that we have is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be invigorated by your word to, to see that more and more and that it would grow and grow and grow in us. And as we labor, Lord, now in the already but not yet, Lord, we know that we are saved. We know that our confidence is sure. We know that our anchor extends over the rod behind the veil and it can't be moved from the holy of holies that we are there, but we're not there yet. Help us, help us to endure, increase our faith, deepen our relationships with each other that we might bear one another's burdens, lean on one another when, when those horrible medical uh, announcements come, when those tragedies are told us, when, when inevitable pain comes, a trial comes, strife comes. Lord, thank you for not having us do this independently, as if we're all staying in our own lanes and running around the same track, but we're all independently competing. Lord, we run the race together, this giant gaggle of people that can carry one another, that can wait back for those that have fallen that can encourage one another, nourish one another. Father, thank you for the church. Thank you that we are not left alone. And we know that we are certainly not left without your spirit. Thank you for filling us, that we are the temple of God. May we bear that afresh in us. May that be a precious reality that we know that we have. We are the temple of God. Father, we ask that you would bless Bless us as we move forward in our week and in our lives. May we grow in Christ-likeness more and more. And may the gospel be ever on our lips. And may we see many converted to Christ. May we see many who want to declare themselves or become Christians because they see our love for each other and know that our arms extend wide to them because our arms are only extension of Christ's. And we ask this all in his holy name. Amen.